Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today is the coronavirus winter surge finally slowing down. Downward, downward, downward. This is not over. We still have stressed out, overworked healthcare workers. We'll hear how music can help kids and their parents talk through hard times. And that's what Sound It Out Together can do. It can give you some, some tools and some tips for how to initiate those conversations. Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver talks about her and the Murphy administration's priorities for their new term in office. We also know that New Jersey has has become probably the most ethnically diverse state in the United States of America. I'll chat with the co-directors of the Showtime doc, Kevin Garnett. Anything is possible. I think also just how big of an impact Chicago had on KG. And a journal tribute to theater critic Michael Bourne, who is retiring this month. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. There's further evidence the coronavirus winter surge in New York State keeps declining. WBGO's Scott Pringle reports. For the first time in a month, the percentage of people testing positive is in the single digits. It's just under 10 percent, way down from the 23 percent earlier in the month. Governor Hochul says the number of COVID hospitalizations and new case numbers continue to fall. We have been waiting for this moment. We are finally trending the direction we want to go down, and that is downward, downward, downward. This is not over. We still have stressed out, overworked healthcare workers who are on the front lines. She says some hospitals are still overwhelmed and Hochul is now sending more National Guard members to help out in nursing homes. The staff are exhausted. They've been overworked. Scott Pringle, WBGO News. The coronavirus pandemic is taking an enormous toll on young people, isolated from friends, unable at times to go to school together and do many other kinds of activities. The American Academy of Pediatrics has declared a state of emergency in children's mental health because of the pandemic. Experts have found that music can help, help kids and their parents talk through the hard times. Sounditouttogether.org, a product of the Ad Council and a company started by Melinda Gates, has music geared toward this. Youth mental health expert Dr. Alfie Breland Noble tells parents how to spot signs of trouble. If your child is normally pretty even-keeled and even-tempered, or one of my children is very sunny and bright all the time. You know that there's something you might want to look into. If over a period of, say, 10 to 12, 14 days, your child stops looking like that. It always helps if we always have those lines of communication already open so the child expects us to come and talk to them, you know, when we think it's time. Um, And that's what Sound It Out Together can do. It can give you some, some tools and some tips for how to initiate those conversations. Dr. Alfie, as she likes to be called, talks about one of the songs. The music um, of the artist really speaking to what's weighing on this child, what the heaviness is about. And the child can't necessarily even explain what that heaviness is about. And so it's a visual and lyrical representation in many ways of depression and what depression looks like in a teenager. You can get much more information by going to sounditouttogether.org. New Jersey Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver says the Murphy administration has plenty of issues to deal with in the new term. She was a guest on our Newark Today call-in show this past Thursday night. I believe that uh, that uh, the people of New Jersey want to see our sec- second term continue to focus on economic development in the state. Uh, you heard during the campaign people 
are definitely concerned about the cost of high property taxes in this state, the high cost of living in New Jersey. And the way we begin to address those issues are to broadening our revenue base, working with our municipalities and towns to lower the cost of public education in school districts. And we want to continue in that vein. You know that we've said with frequency, we want to build a stronger and a fairer New Jersey. We're concerned about the wealth disparity that exists in New Jersey. And we look at the income of a media, uh, the median income of a black family in New Jersey versus the median income of a white family versus the medium, the median income of a Latino family in New Jersey, broad disparities, and they are some of the broadest disparities in the nation. That is something we want to prioritize as well. Uh, supporting small minority veteran women-owned businesses. Uh, small businesses are the backbone of, of, of any state. And people often think that, you know, it's the big corporations. It's Main Street, New Jersey, that makes communities thrive. And we want to continue our focus on that. We also know that New Jersey has, has become probably the most ethnically diverse state in the United States of America. It's not Florida. It's not California. It's the 9 million people that live in New Jersey. We have an, uh, an expanding Latino population in this state, Caribbean population. Uh, when we look at our West African population that is growing in New Jersey, and we're all about inclusion and diversity. And as we always say in vernacular, giving everybody a seat at the table. Lieutenant Governor Oliver told Newark Today host Michael Hill during the program that her priorities are very clear. You know, something that's a passion of mine, Michael, as the commissioner of the Department of Community Affairs, is to create more affordable housing in yes. New Jersey. Um, you know, just the other day, someone cited to me and pointed to, uh, you know, a, a development in New Jersey, right in our area in Essex County. And they pointed out to me that a one bedroom was $2,000. Mm -hmm. That's that's not affordable. And when we think about, you know, a family, a, a one parent family raising children, uh, that's not affordable. So you know that as my uh, role of commissioner of DCA, I chair the New Jersey Housing Mortgage Finance Agency. Yes. So we are able to provide funding and tax credits to developers, both profit and nonprofit. And uh, we are able to leverage our uh, economic power at the uh, NJMFA uh, to, to, to do housing. My passion also is first time home buyers program. When you begin to talk about wealth disparity uh, and you look at black wealth disparity versus you know uh, majority population, one of the things that haunts us in the black community is that we don't own property. And I know that if we can help more disenfranchised uh, people become homeowners, it sets the foundation for developing intergenerational wealth. How about the impact of legalizing marijuana in the Garden State? 
Lieutenant Governor Oliver addressed that as well. Interestingly, when we look at the municipalities that had to vote on whether they wanted to be the host of the cannabis industry, it was sort of a 50-50 split. So we do have half the communities in New Jersey that want to be the site of cultivation and distribution and retail sales of cannabis. So that is unfinished work in the, uh, in the Murphy administration. If you missed this latest edition of the show, you can go to the WBGO Facebook page and see and hear the entire one-hour program. Today we take a closer look into one of the latest documentaries from Showtime Sports and Showtime Basketball, Kevin Garnett, Anything is Possible. This amazing film gives us a personal perspective on the career of NBA Hall of Famer and 2008 Boston Celtics champion Kevin Garnett. My guests today are the co-directors of the documentary, Daniel B. Levin and Eric W. Newman. The ingredients that make up Kevin Garnett, a tablespoon of fun, a tablespoon of seriousness, two tablespoons of hard work, and a tablespoon of gratitude, a teaspoon of gullibleness, and you need two tablespoons of hate because I'm driven by the hate. Eric, let's start with you. You are also the executive director of Showtime Basketball's platform. Great programs educate and entertain. You knew you had something special right away when you've said in the past, Kevin Garnett's storytelling was like opening up a faucet and it's already on. And KG let it rip with rawness and realness during this documentary. Did you realize that he was such a storyteller when you started this project? You know, KG had such a passion for the game and we're so animated on the floor. But until we started to see him in front of a camera post-career, like we weren't sure if that spirit and that passion and that energy was going to translate to off the floor in front of the camera. And you got a sense of it a little bit before we started working with him. But when he sat in for the first interview, we knew he was prepped. We knew he was excited about the project, but we had no inclination we were going to get some of the magic that we did like those moments we were ready for those moments we knew he was going to bring it but we couldn't have anticipated what some of those things were going to be like if that makes sense so for us as storytellers and putting together the team and the crew we did around this we just had to be ready to capture all the magic whenever it was presented and and, and thankfully we did and obviously there's great trust here between him and us and that started with our approach to him putting the creative together, flushing all that stuff and uh, flushing all that stuff out, excuse me, in 2019. And then finally rolling cameras in uh, January, 2020 to get this thing started. Dan, what a journey KG has had uh, this thin giant who eventually would learn to play with that passion and be vocal about it on the court. We learned about that in the documentary. I was struck by how much his career and story has really changed the NBA of today. And that was certainly one of the goals I know of Kevin Garnett, anything is possible. Yeah, definitely. We sort of started out and we had these four pillars that we looked at, you know, the how KG changed the game. Of course, being the first to come straight from high school in 20 years, is probably one of the most well-known. So that was our initial. Then of course he assigns, uh, he signs a deal, $126 million contract. That was the biggest in sports at the time. And uh, that changed the business of the game. It led to the lockout. Um, then, of course, he, he transformed the power forward position, his position. You know, he, he sort of took it to what it is today. He spread out the floor. He could bring the ball up. He could shoot. He could move. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, he lands in Boston in 2008, creates the big three. 
And that really creates the super team era that we still see today. So those were sort of our pillars of how he changed the NBA. And then you pair that with his story, his, his unbelievable storytelling ability. That was sort of the framework of our film. And I think sometimes because you're both joining us from New York, is that since KG played you know, much of his career in Minnesota, that he wasn't as well known as far as all the intricacies of his career until he became a champion uh, with the Celtics. But you're both fans of 90s basketball, and his full story was never really told before. I learned so much in this film from why he wore number 21 to why the Timberwolves never won a championship with him in the lineup and why the Celtics made such a dramatic turnaround and won the NBA championship. What did each of you learn by doing this doc? Eric, you first. Well, Doug, I, uh, I magically grew up a Celtics fan. So uh, I always admired KG from afar when he was with Minnesota. And, you know, I was one of the first people who was like telling his friends, like, you got to get league pass so you can watch someone else besides the Knicks or the Nets and what they give you on national TV. And, you know, I, on average, I would watch a KG game probably, you know, once or twice a month on League Pass and was always a fan. And when he becomes a Celtic, it's, it, it really became the not just from a, a Celtic fan perspective and how their marriage was so perfect, but it was the brotherhood that he needed to be part of again. And we see in the film, and for those who haven't seen it yet, you know, I don't, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's, you know, it's public knowledge. You know, he has the brotherhood in high school with Ronnie Fields in Chicago, and then he thinks he's going to have it with Steph Marbury, and that doesn't work. And then he builds that with Malik Seeley, and that obviously ends in tragedy. And then the Spreewell Cassell thing only lasts for a year, and then those guys are on their way. And it just always felt like with him, that was escaping him. So when you really go below the surface and why the Celtic experience means so much, both for him and in our story, he finds the brotherhood again. He reconnects with Paul Pierce. He has that that mentor figure in Doc Rivers, who also happens to be from Chicago. And it's just such a, a powerful role in our film. And obviously, he never lost the Chicago bonds with his high school coach and with Ronnie and others. So, you know, the brotherhood thing was really interesting. And as far as other things to learn, you know, Dan talked about those four pillars. And when you take a step back and you think about it, how many athletes or how many people who have become stars in their industry can make such an impact in four so very powerful and distinct ways? Dan always mentioned this, but I'm just going to throw this out there. You know, in the NBA in the 90s, they thought they had the next guys after Magic, after Larry, and then, of course, who they were setting up to be after Michael. They were never expecting this generation of high schoolers to start coming in the league. So KG always says, he, had, he tore the Matrix a little bit, and then the class of 96 with Kobe and Iverson, they tore that thing wide open. And it's such an interesting thing to think about, and it completely changed the, lands, the landscape of not just the league, but basketball culture and culture in this country, because people can look at them and say, well, they can do this, and we can dream too. And that was a big, big part of our film, and obviously one of the big pillars there, along with... Um, the contract, the power forwards, and then, of course, the super team era that came uh, when he went to the Celtics. How about for you, Dan? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the things for me that I learned that were just the most fascinating were sort of the details that, you know, maybe aren't as apparent when you know the sort of wider story. But like, like Eric mentioned, you know, the fact that KG and Paul Pierce played together on an AAU team, they won a championship together. You know, they had a relationship. Paul Pierce was trying to get KG to come finish his high school career in Englewood. 
So that, you know, that the fact that their bond goes back that far, you know, was truly fascinating to unravel. Um, I think also just how big of an impact Chicago had on KG, you know, his, his year in Farragut with Coach Wolf, with Ronnie Fields. I mean, that sort of, you know, in a way, it, it, it transitioned him from a teenager to an adult. Obviously, jumping into the league really turned him into adult. But, you know, Chicago, I think, gave him a certain personality, a certain confidence. And then you connect, uh, you know, people like Isaiah Thomas into that. It's just wild, all the connections that run through Chicago. So for me, it was a lot of the details that, you know, were just very revelatory and, and surprising to learn. Chicago has always had a unique history when it comes to basketball and players that come from the city. There is no separation between most of being black, being from Chicago, and being connected to the game of basketball. I don't know what basketball is like in South Carolina. You know, the kid is ridiculously skilled, but if he ain't cut out here, he can forget it. You can't understand Chicago basketball until you've experienced it and lived it. High school basketball in Chicago, that's where you make your mark. If you're a bad boy in college, all right, that's cool. You're a bad boy in the pros, that's cool. But if you're a bad boy in high school, then you got name notoriety forever. That's Chicago basketball. NBA fans and college basketball fans know pretty much all of the people that you talk about, except for Ronnie Fields. And I'm not going to spoil it, but it's a story, an emotional one, that you have to know. Because if you don't know the Ronnie Fields story, and I'll be honest, I didn't know the Ronnie Fields story. So I learned so much about that. It's such a telling part of Kevin Garnett and who he uh, has turned out to be. But some of the other people from Coach William Wolf Nelson at Farragut Academy in Chicago, I, I guess he had a treasure trove of videotapes for you. And, you know, I've heard you say when you're documenting, you know, you work on a documentary and somebody says, oh, here's a bunch of old tapes. You're salivating, right? Yeah. I mean, that was a magic moment when we went, you know, we brought Kevin back to Farragut. But the day before we went, you know, and I met Wolf and he just brought me to the back of the locker room and he pulled out a duffel bag and it was full of VHS tapes. And he's like, I've been saving these. And, you know, you're just flipping through the the tabs and it's like this game, that game. It's like he almost had the whole season on VHS and a lot of it had never been seen. Um, and, you know, also local news reports, just everything that's sort of painting the picture of Farragut in 94, 95. So yeah, that was a moment as a documentary filmmaker, you're like, wow, I'm on the right path. This is this is going the right way. Doug, let me just say, just on top of that, like we have the the, the videotape moment, but then um, you know, we we have such a great team on this. So like you gotta shout out our archive producer Jackson Devereaux. Jackson goes through like these old different KG videos on YouTube, and I think it was either like the ESPN Sports Century or the Fox Sports Beyond the Glory. And he's going through the credits looking for just sources and names. And he finds this name of a doctor in Chicago who was his hobby was sports photography. And he documented the entire 94, 95 Farragut season with these beautiful portraits. So we get in touch with him. We go back to Chicago in the fall of 2020, where we interview Ronnie, we interview Scoop, we interview David Kaplan, who covered him in high school. And We've got 90 minutes with Dr. Paul Smolson at his house before we got to go to the airport. And it was like, it was the ultimate treasure find. Like he's just taking out binders and binders and binders of 
Farragut photographs. And I look at Dan, I'm like, how are we going to do this? Doug, his wife comes out with a post-its and we've got 90 minutes and we're literally going through every page and we're putting post-it notes on every picture we want scanned. And then there'll be other like NBA incredible stuff in there from Chicago stadium. We're like, he filmed the late, uh, he shot photos of the late Reggie Lewis when he was playing with Bird and McHale and Parrish and just this just gold mine of sports photography. And we were overwhelmed in the best way. It was the best way to cap off Chicago. And as we see in the film, those photographs just make this so much more because they're so intimate. They're so personal. It would have never happened if mom doesn't call Coach Nelson and take care of my boy. He's, he's here in, in South Carolina, and he's at Malden High School, and he's, he's not really to his problem. He, he got into a, a mess, and I'll let you, you know, those watch the, the film to know more about that. But if mom doesn't call Wolf Nelson, we might not ever have heard of Kevin Garnett. That's true. And I think, you know, a lot of what's interesting about the story is sort of him being in these these circumstances at the right place in the right time or making a decision that changes everything. You know, if he doesn't walk into a gym, you know, after the season in Farragut and, you know, he's down and out about his test scores and the pressure of what's he going to do next. And he goes, you know, to 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 take his mind off of things by playing basketball and he winds up in this gym that changes the course of his life. So there's all these, you know, these sort of moments that happen in his career early in his career too uh that i think helped give the twists and turns of the film we're speaking here on sports jam with the co-directors of the showtime sports and showtime basketball documentary kevin garnett anything is possible killer killer <laughs> I'm the bite size. I'm the bite size version of the case what's up boy so, boy how you been it's all good good to see you man Everybody in here you have on the wall is huge in the history and the making of the history of the I even got a king teaching Shaq. I see that. How to go big. Because that, that was his teacher right there. Right. And see, Dr. J, the reason why I like him, because I play in Chucks. Facts. I can't play in no regular basketball shoes. I got to play in knees, man. You got to play some Chucks. Come on, man. That's OG style. I love it. The segment with Snoop, Snoop Dogg, the rapper, is really raw, right? For those uh, who have small children, you don't want to hear that conversation. But that's what's great about this documentary because it is so personal and emotional and serious. You have two individuals in Snoop Dogg talking with Kevin Garnett in a setting and just letting it go, you know, and just talking about what's happened recently in the world of sports and in, in our world in general and with racism and with the George Floyd murder. Eric, why did you feel that was important to put into the film? You know, Doug, we were, we were living through this polarizing time and you know it happened in, in minneapolis it happened at a place that he spent 12 years of his not just his career his life he, he has roots there relationships there he's obviously you know he's probably the greatest athlete to ever play in that state in any sport and um add in the fact that you know he's african-american grew up in the south had dealt with those things himself throughout his entire life and to then have him and Snoop, like, you know, we had the, the, the topics laid out, but it, it's up to them to take it and run with it. And obviously, uh, that conversation turns into something that's very powerful, very meaningful. Combine that with then being on the ground with Kevin in Minneapolis to experience that with him. 
Um, it's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen or been a part of. I still have chills thinking about that day and what it meant and just observing Kevin. And we had to do something in the flow of the film to shed light on what was happening in our society and in our culture. And him back in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, visiting that, you know, and, and you know, Gary Trent, his former teammate, was there with him. And we went in there very subtly, very quietly. And it was a powerful moment. And it was a moment we felt needed to be in the film because we, we, all, we all lived it in different ways. Um, and this was a very unique way and through Kevin's lens and obviously the, the lens of us as filmmakers. So between uh, the Snoop moment and the experience of being on the ground, uh, we, we felt compelled to do it. But then we, of course, had to make it work in the edit. And, uh, and, and, and we think it did. Yeah, relevancy is you know, something that you're always trying to achieve with, with a project. So we, we get a history lesson, we get a whole new perspective on Kevin Garnett as a person, and we get timely information on how they feel about it. I mean, it really works. Uh, I was glued to this documentary, couldn't push it away. Also struck that Kevin Garnett, when we talk about racism and that, there are many white people in his life that he gave credit to. You know, you have people like Kevin McHale and Danny Ainge were very influential in his basketball career as executives, and he got along with them. And the first person that ever exposed him to basketball was a white person in his neighborhood. I think it shows just what type of person Kevin Garnett is inside. I don't think Kevin Garnett, while he's proud to be who he is, he doesn't see color, I don't think, as much as other people might think. Well, I think I would say this, the, you know, the sport that he chose to play, the sport that Eric and I grew up playing, you know, basketball is a cultural connector. It's a conductor. It brings people from all over America, all over the world together, you know, and, and it, it, it puts everybody on an even team and they have to work together. So I think those lessons, I mean, those lessons are things that taught me stuff in my life. I'm sure they've taught Kevin a lot in his life. And it's something that we can all experience. So I think it all comes back to sort of the core of why people love basketball and why people love team sports. You can hear the entire conversation with Eric W. Newman and Daniel B. Levin on my podcast, Sports Jam. You can hear all the podcasts from WBGO by going to wbgo.org slash studios. Legendary WBGO announcer Michael Bourne is retiring at the end of the month, but his Singers Unlimited show is now available as a podcast. Here's a final journal tribute to the wonderful theater critic, his 2019 review of Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune that featured a big supporter of WBGO, the incredible actor Michael Shannon, and his Broadway superstar co-star Audra McDonald. I've attended several productions of the play Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune. I can't say that I've ever known what the play by Terrence McNally is about, the meaning of it all, other than sex, passion, doubt, fear, loneliness, longing, need, hunger for love, or just an omelet. Hunger is maybe metaphoric. They work in a diner. She's a waitress. He's a cook. It all starts with the sex, but whatever is happening between this man and this woman in this night together is close enough for love, or at least a connection. McNally's play is relentlessly compelling. If the Frankie and the Johnny are, and they are in the revival now on Broadway, Michael Shannon is one of the most intense actors I've ever seen on a stage. 
and felt from a stage. Audrey McDonald is one of the best singers who can act, or actors who can sing, ever on Broadway. She's often shown us the deepest humanity, him too, and literally they're naked when the play begins, quite vocally having sex. But whatever follows is much more intimate. Johnny wants more sex, but really wants more than sex. Johnny's wanting her, frightens her. Johnny is hungry for love. Frankie is hungry for an omelet. He actually chops the pepper and onion, cracks and cooks the eggs. And if you're as suggestible as I am after the show, you will want a Western. Through most of the play, they listen to classical records on the radio. And the play does feel like music. They don't exactly resolve the harmony, but the melody lingers on. For Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune. I'm Michael Bourne. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 6.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. Portraits in Blue is up next on WBGO and WBGO.org.